Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. As a frequent traveler, I'm always looking for great bags and DB meets a lot of my needs. We are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD. 10. And I repeat, pod 10, or going to the link in our show notes, DB, it's time to move on, time to get going. I think it was 1997 article in the, uh, right, it's this uh, old creation story of something being made out of nothing or out of the wasteland, right? And there are a whole host of films that document or create this image of the South Bronx as an urban wasteland, right? A place of urban chaos. And those of us who've read our creation myths, we know that in the midst like of chaos is often a space of great fecundity, right? The biblical motif of creation ex nihilio, creation out of nothing. And that's often the way in which the story of hip hop is talked about. The past, uh, the education of my pastor, So there were a host of resources in African-American studies uh, and in religious studies, but there weren't, at least during the two years that I was taking classes at Harvard, there wasn't a a whole lot of folks, there weren't a whole lot of folks who were working in both those fields. So I still had to in some ways piece those together. This is your host, Sadia Khan, and I am back with the very last episode of our 11th season. Put on your thinking caps because today's guest will really get your mind to bend in ways it may not have before. Staying true to this season's theme on religion and spirituality, we have invited an expert in religious and African-American studies, Professor Yosef Sorat. At Columbia University, he teaches and directs its Center for African American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice. Furthermore, he conducts research and writes in tandem. Right now, you can find his most recent work, Spirit in the Dark, a religious history of racial aesthetics on the shelves while he works on his second book, titled The Holy Holy Black, The Ironies of an African-American Secular. During our conversation, we talked about the boundaries between secular and sacred, how religion has influenced black culture from hip-hop music to social movements, and why returning to the junctions of religion and culture can be both a source of reconciliation and investment in what is common. Let's get started. I am so excited that we are going to have this conversation today. And before we begin, I just want to say one thing. Your area of study is so fascinating. Um especially your work, the summer series that you did on intersection of religion and hip hop. Just prepping for this interview, I learned a lot about hip hop and religion, not to the point where I can call myself um, an expert or anything of that sort. Like I'm far, far, far away from that. But what I want to do during this interview is to learn more And there is so much that I want to ask. But before we do that, I want to know what initially drew you to this area of study. I'm curious how your upbringing and exposure to religion may have shaped your focus. Absolutely. That's a great question. That's a great question. As you know, right, I I teach both in the religion department and in African-American, african diaspora studies and, you know, moving back and forth across the subjects of religion and race, they are, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much there. There's so much 
that is incredibly relevant today, right? And so much is central to the long history of the nation and to the, you know, the very questions when we think about the intersection of religion and race, I, you know, thinking about my own preparation for this podcast, the, the you know, theme of the way in which race and questions around immigration and religion, um, religion and race are front and center to these kinds of questions that seem to be at the forefront of your podcast in general. For me, it very much on both sides of that equation, the kinds of questions that I'm trying to get at through the summer series, in the courses I teach at Columbia, in my own research, both, you know, the book that's out and, and the work that I'm finishing up very much is grounded in my own experiences, right, of growing up as uh, an African-American young man uh, with a white father, an African-American mother mm-hmm. in and around Boston, moving in and out of these different kinds of worlds from uh, Boston, Roxbury and Jamaica Plain, where I spent a number of my early years to Lincoln, where I also uh, throughout my adolescent lived. Those two worlds are about as far apart economically, racially, what have you, as one could imagine, even though they're only 30 miles or 30 minute drive away. Um, You know, Roxbury is a uh, historic African-American neighborhood, right? Um, And to to move out to Lincoln, where my teammates, uh, my soccer teammates' names were Garrison and Thoreau and Adams, (laughs) right? And they were descendants of these, right? Founding fathers in the the history of the nation, right? The great white men that show up on Columbia's core curriculum, if you will. Um, And so moving between Lincoln and Roxbury, you know, that, that those different kinds of experiences of race and class were are, are still front and center when I'm teaching. And I, I, at the same time, you know, both of my parents, when they met at college in the 60s, were running around away in many ways from their own traditional religious upbringings. Right. Um, and so my early years. My parents were not, um, you know, churchgoers or formally religious in any way. They might be considered part of that spiritual but not religious group, right? As they were trying mm. to chart their own paths that involved Islam, involved African uh, culture, that in, uh, involved Eastern uh, religious philosophies, if you will. Uh, but shortly before I entered my teenage years through a different set of paths, they both became born again Christians. Right. Wow. And so I ended up spending from roughly around the time I was 10 um, until I went off to college at Oral Roberts University, which is its own story about religion and race. I spent, you know, so many hours, days within a uh, what we would call a non-denominational, charismatic, multicultural, uh, prosperity preaching church about 20 minutes also north of Boston, right? And that, and that was a world, you know, where, uh, right, that would be, would fall within um, the kind of space of what gets lumped together as evangelical Christianity today. Uh, but, you know, there's still so much more uh, below, the, underneath that label. But this church was a, a center, a uh, central part of my own identity formation uh, coming of age in the, uh, in the eighties in, in, in and around Boston. And so there at the evangelical high school that I went to in Lexington, Massachusetts, and then certainly at Oral Roberts university, watching the ways in which these different communities dealt with questions of religious difference, of racial difference, um, continues to shape the kinds of questions I try to get at in the classroom and in my research. Mm. And so I still very much, I do identify, as a Christian, but not in a way that would be recognized as legitimate by the church I was raised in or uh, at Oral Roberts University, right? So- Can can um, you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that? So, I mean, there's any number of ways we can look at this, right? So the church and Oral Roberts um, Mm. espoused to a vision of Christianity that was deeply shaped by the kind of multicultural discourse of the 80s, right, at that time. It's sort of way in which, you know, we're more alike than we are different, um, but at the same time, a kind of way that doesn't, embracing that difference in a way that doesn't account for the real structural inequalities that get mapped onto that difference, right? We're, mm. We can recognize, right, the value in a range of religious traditions, but that's not the same 
as denying that folks of different religious faiths uh, get treated differently in the context of the United States, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And the same for race, right? That we can say, okay, we're all one in Christ, uh, but we don't all get treated equally, even within the context of Christian churches. And that became increasingly clear as I, right, my own racial analysis was sharpening. Uh, and as I was becoming a young man and was perceived differently uh, by the congregation or by the, even by the leadership, right? And so something, mm. I mean, I think of something very silly, um, you know, at Oral Roberts University, we were, I was at Oral Roberts around the time Malcolm X, Spike Lee's movie came out and a whole mm. group of me and uh, my friends, right? All, uh, all of whom in this group were African-American decided on the release of Malcolm X, we're going to wear bow ties, right? And, and you know, clearly that was a way of asserting racial difference in the context of a community that didn't acknowledge it. And it was perceived as such. It was recognized as such by the larger community, right? Wow. And even at my home church, when I went back to the church that I grew up in and wore that bow tie, that difference was perceived as such. Who do you want to be? You're trying to be Malcolm X? So there were, you know, a whole host of ways in which that difference was clarified, by, not, you know, by the community. Yeah, that, and that was very central to my own form, recognizing a different kind of Christian sensibility. My, my decision eventually to leave that church and, and to, you know, to, you know, pursue, try to hold on, establish my Christian faith in a way that also accounted for these inequalities and these differences. So how do you do that? How have you salvaged uh, your Christian faith in ways where you are empowering um movements or calls for equity? You know, one of the key ways that this has taken is trying to find space within my academic work to leverage the resources of the academy in service to those communities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I guess the most obvious way that has taken shape is through a center that I've founded, is, which grew out of a set of conversations, really a, a community partnership between a group of scholars, clergy, and activists who were interested in thinking differently about the intersection of religion, race, gender, and sexuality with sort of marriage equality as the backdrop, right? And this is ah. the, the, the Center on African-American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice that grew out of these conversations with preachers, scholars, and activists uh, and exists to sort of support research, education, public engagement uh, that is concerned with supporting uh, conversations that affirm uh, not just racial and gender difference, but also sexual difference, right? Um, mm. And certainly, right, the, the spaces of, uh, that I grew up in, in the context of uh, Christianity saw homosexuality, and to my knowledge, to this day, continue to see homosexuality at best as a sin, right? Mm, um, mm. And and so that's not a, you know, uh, that vision of Christianity uh, is not one that I would still subscribe to, but one rather sort of orientation that recognizes that Christian faith begins with uh, a valuing of those who society often deems the least. I want to pivot to your academic work. And I am curious to know when you first started out, right? Did you find that there wasn't even an exact language or enough resources to cover and grapple with the issues that you were looking into? That's, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, the 1990s is when I was in college. And, you know, this was, you know, there was a, I think it was 1997 article in the uh, covered the Atlantic Monthly called the New Intellectuals, right? And it was basically featuring a, a generation of black public intellectuals from Bell Hooks and Cornell West, Lonnie Guineer, Patricia Williams, uh, just so many of these black intellectuals who were you know writing these books that were accessible. Um, so there was a way in which there was right that. That put the possibility of an academic path on my radar, right? Because I didn't grow up around professors, right? right? And so seeing these uh, African-American intellectuals, I remember my mother bringing me a copy of Cornell West's Race Matters, right? And, and right for you know, Cornell West, who continues to be at the forefront of scholarship, but also of activism, right? Christian faith is central to how he understands race. And so I sort of 
supplementing what I was learning at Boston University by way of a liberal theological education uh, mm. where there wasn't a, a whole host of black faculty at the Boston University School of Theology through my own reading, through taking some classes in African-American studies there, which was also a time where African-American studies was under-resourced. There wasn't a lot. So I kind of created my own uh, track on religion and literature focused on the African diaspora. So, and then I ended up at Harvard where there was a whole host of resources, right? There were, you know, within the African-American studies department, um, you know, my advisor ended up being Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. Um, it, unfortunately, Cornell West departed for Princeton right around the time I left. Um, but then also at the Divinity School, I worked with David Carrasco and Robert Orsi. So there were a host of resources in African-American studies uh, and in religious studies. But there weren't, at least during the two years that I was taking classes at Harvard, there wasn't a, a whole lot of folk. There weren't a whole lot of folks who were working in both those fields. So I still had yeah. to in some ways piece those together. Um, before I finished up, you know, Harvard hired Marla Frederick, who's now at Candler. You know, in re recent years, you know, they've built up uh, a, a group of uh, black faculty working in religious studies. But when I was there, I was I had, there weren't any course offerings at those intersections, sadly. So do you think it has anything to do with activism of faculty and students from minority groups to make that shift? Because I am assuming things are different right now. And if they are not, correct me if I'm wrong. Right now, I think certainly, you know, I've been fortunate since my time at Columbia while, while I'm, you know, now chair of the religion department. Uh, you know, my affiliation has always been both in religion and in African diaspora study, African-American African diaspora studies, which is mm. the newest department at Columbia. Right. Um, oh. And it, it was just, you know, the, the what was an institute became a department, I guess, two or three years ago now. And so I was fortunate ah. to be a part of that process of faculty building behind the scenes uh, to move to departmental status. Um, but that also was certainly, those efforts were certainly, I don't know whether amplified is the right word, but buoyed maybe by the broader set of questions and concerns that are front and center around activism, right? You can't think about uh, the last decade without thinking about the movement for black lives. Right. right? But the, and so certainly the attention to race at the global level, at the national level, added further fuel to our efforts and it gave a sense of, I think, broader purpose, even though I think that is also part of a longer tradition going back well over a century within the academy of uh, scholars who also are grounded within activist movements, right, who see their scholarship flowing out of a commitment to social change, right? In fact, when I you know, I, I think back now and I laugh at what I wrote in my personal statement to get into graduate school, I just, which it sort of shows I didn't have a sense of what it meant to be a, an academic in a traditional sense. But it sort of was indicative of those questions. Right. Activism uh, was front and center to how, what I saw or associated with the work of the academy. And um, uh. I think that's that's part of a larger trajectory within fields like black studies, where uh, what's taking place in the academy has grown out of broader social change efforts. And, you know, at, at least in certain spaces, tries to remain accountable uh, or at least in conversation with what's going on within black communities around the world, um, if that makes sense. Do you see any challenges or any pushback through this process? I mean, there are people who would say, you know, who would have thought that hip hop yes. and religion would ever enter into a conversation together. Before we go into all those details and talk about your summer series, can you give us historical context, history 101 of the evolution of hip hop? Sure. Um, that's going to be a challenge. That's setting me up to get in trouble, but that's a great, great <laughs> question, right? And I, I sort of wrestle with this, right, in a class, right, where I teach this course on religion and the history of hip hop, which the public series was uh, attached to. And yeah. part of one of the things I wrestle with in the beginning is, right, because it is a, a, a course that introduces students to the history of hip hop, uh, yet we do so with also an eye for a set of religious studies questions. So I try mm. to give them some of the founding stories of hip hop, right? But always recognizing that there, there isn't a single story. 
right? But there are right. ones that have become central and they, in some ways, right, to think about this in, in, in a religious studies lens, function as creation myths, hmm. which is to say hmm. like one, the most popular history that we hear is, right, of a story of the South Bronx in the early 70s, in the years mm. after Robert Moses designed the South Bronx Expressway, there, right, there are a set of historical facts that lead to the de demolition of a set of communities there in the South Bronx as I-95 is paved through, is plowed through the South Bronx, right? There are a set of social mm. indicators uh, that lead to the South Bronx is what, you know, sociologists and historians will describe as a post-industrial, right? Jobs have left. White slight, white folks have departed to the suburbs and with mm. it, resources have been withdrawn. Arts programs in public schools have been defunded. And right, we have a group of black and brown young people who insist on making their voices heard, seize public power to host block parties. And with it, right, comes the birth of hip hop. That right, mm. is this uh, old creation story of something being made out of nothing or out of the wasteland, right? Wow. And there are a whole host of films that document or create this image of the South Bronx as an urban wasteland, right? A place of urban chaos. And those of us who've read our creation myths, we know that in the midst like of chaos is often a space of great fecundity, right? mm. the biblical mm. motif of creation ex nihilio, creation out of nothing. And that's often the way in which the story of hip hop is talked about. Uh, and there's a truth to that, right? There is a set of creativity here in the city around graffiti, around breakdancing, um, around emceeing, but it's not the only place, right? You have right. cultures that are being brought from the Caribbean. We think of cool DJ Herc as one of the, you know, seen as one of the founding figures, but you also have creation stories in places uh, throughout the country. Los Angeles might want to, right? Folks from the West Coast might want to say that, you know, there's a version of hip hop that grows out of the poetry scene of the 60s there uh, mm -hmm. and, and founds a new tradition there in the same way that folks in, in, in the Northeast will claim the last poem. It. So um, there are these different histories um, that are very much grounded in a set of social changes uh, and cultural shifts and aesthetic traditions that are refigured to lead uh, folks to record, uh, you know, poetry over music and give us everything from Rapper's Delight, uh, the first commercially released hip hop song, which is actually mm -hmm. recorded out in you know Jersey. Uh, um, by a producer who claimed that she was divinely inspired, right? So religion's there. Uh, or The Message, right? Which is a Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five, which offers a kind of social critique of what's happening um, yeah. uh, in, in the city, right? In the post-industrial mm. ghetto where resources have been withdrawn, safety nets are being erased, uh, and folks are forced uh, to struggle to make ends meet, and many are left with an inability to do so. Uh, right. And so hip hop emerges in the midst, midst of that. Um, and yeah, so that's part that I means sort of that's one way we might begin the story is sort of a set of uh, black and brown, especially young people who are dancing, who are rapping, who are hmm. uh, painting on trains. <laughs> uh, we could think of right campaigns to clean the trains. Right. So this is not something that is embraced. It's imagined as a threat to the social fabric as hip hop is uh, being founded. It's not the dynamic art tradition and form of global culture that it's often celebrated as now. It's seen as a threat to American culture. Why do you think it was seen as a threat? There's a long tradition, I guess, right, of black and brown young people, especially, hmm. <laughs> being perceived as a threat, right? Hip hop is being forged around the same time, the discourse uh, of the super predator, Uh, coming out of a uh, right, we think about Bush, the Bush era, right. uh, in the in um, Bush one. Um, we think about the Reagan era in the 1980s. Say no to drugs. There's a way in which right a concern with the rise of crack, um, a concern uh, with drugs, a, a concern with uh, gangsters is mapped on to hip hop music, right? And so uh, this is part of a longer concern with black uh, and brown masculinity. Um, and there's a way in which hip hop becomes the newest version of this anxiety about uh, what's going on with bl young black and brown men in cities around the country. When we talk about gangster rap, was it pushed by 
labels that were owned and run by white folks or um, black rappers themselves. Everyone who's rapping about guns and shooting is not doing so because they're gangsters, right? right? There's a whole host of folks who are doing so and are using the language. I think of Rakim, who we talked about last night at the end of the series and earlier on as well, who's a part of 5% uh, 5%er community. When he's talking about a gun, it's metaphorically, right? He's right. talking about his lyrical right. prowess. Uh, now, there are right folks who are actually quote unquote, gang banging, right? That this is, so I'm not denying the reality of gang violence, mm. uh, but that's just one layer of the violence that is part and parcel of the fabric of American culture. And so when young men are rapping about this, uh, they're also participating in the culture in, uh, in American history in which the outlaw has been valorized, right? Mm. And so, mm. uh, right, the, the, it's a culture in which, right, but Puffy, would eventually name his label bad boy, not because they're all gangsters or they're all bad boys, right? But because the bad boy uh, is a prominent theme in the history of the nation, right? This is, um, and so record labels are quick to capitalize on the authenticity and alterity of these young folks who are rebelling against sort of dominant middle-class mores, right? Um, And so, Mm -hmm. yes, right, there are folks who are, Right. Running the streets. Yeah. But here's what really intrigued me, that when we think about rap, initially, at least, black political rap was dismissed as hyper violent. Right. Um, Uh, And it's political relevance, especially when it came to the subject of racism, was completely sidelined. But then we see white rappers like Eminem and their political punditry somehow resonates with white males. Is that a form of white supremacy? Yeah, Ooh, you've used the dangerous word, right? Folks don't want to use the language. We think about <laughs> all the attacks on critical race theory, right? That white supremacy has uh, come in vogue and out of vogue uh, all within the span of one year. I mean, absolutely, right? And here what I think is important to distinguish when we're talking about white supremacy, we're not simply talking about white folk who don't like black people, right? So we're talking about a set of structural arrangements that have existed for centuries that have worked deliberately to keep black people uh, and non-white people more broadly in, we'll just say, subservient roles, right? Right. Uh, To make them permanently unequal. And so certainly in the aftermath of the gains of the civil rights movement, certain possibilities were new possibilities were uh, made available, but that does not erase the set of structural relations that are reconfigured, right? So um, when when folks talk about mass incarceration as the new Jim Crow, right, they're talking about the links between, right, the prison system now, peonage labor and and Jim Crow, right, the various forms of peonage labor that kept black people in a subserf economic status for from the period of the end of Reconstruction up through the 1960s, which itself was a reconstitution of the labor relations associated with chattel Mm. slavery. So it's not to erase a history of progress, but it's to recognize how we still are grappling with uh, a set of historic relations that work to keep white people in a position of supreme privilege, one might say. Absolutely, absolutely. But I am curious to know, why did you think it was important to bring this discussion, this intersectionality into consciousness? Why do you think it matters? Yeah, so I mean, this goes right back to your first question, right, about what about my own experience, right? I grew up in the 80s. I'm part of, right, what Bakari Kitwana, the longtime editor at The Source, public intellectual journalist, describes as the hip-hop generation, right? Mm -hmm. I was born in 1973. Technically, what folks cite is the year that hip-hop was born when Cool DJ Herc 
DJ that party up on Cedric Avenue in the Bronx. Um, and so this, this is a music, this was a soundtrack that I grew up mm. on, right? Some mm. of my earliest memories of purchasing records, of receiving records and gifts were hip hop tracks, but they were also gospel music tracks, right? And right, some of the earliest critiques of hip hop music came from within religious communities that right, saw it not just as a threat to the nation, but as the newest iteration of the devil's music. Mm. And so my students, they, what, between the ages of 18 and 22, you have Kanye, you have Chance, you have right. all these folks who are rapping. It's hard for them to imagine a world in which Christianity is not front and center in hip hop. But I often joke and say, I, you know, I wish in high school, right, Chance had released Coloring Book or I had Coloring Book, this music, like this album where huh. ostensibly it's hard to draw a line between the hip hop and the gospel. That was not available. And, and so I you know, threw away a lot of my hip hop CDs because I felt convicted by the church community. And so how do we tell a story about the evolution of the music? Religion has always been a part of the music from hmm. five percenters like Rakim to gangster rappers, so-called gangster rappers like uh, Scarface, who still right talks about right he in, in 1989 he's rapping about being you know being a part of the drug game, but also being in church every Sunday morning, praying for forgiveness and trying to find an exit from the business. So how do we capture the the history of religion and race over the last 50 years? in this musical form that is often understood as being anathema and opposed to all things religious. And mm -hmm. the music is just rife with a vari variety of religious themes. How do you think hip hop was able to break through that racial order and that cultural and ethnic hegemony when it comes to say Islam and hip hop, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, two things, right? I mean. Black music has always been incredibly popular. It's been front and center to American culture, right? Hmm. Uh, the scholar and activist W. Du Bois talks about the Negro spirituals, right? Being the first original American folk music, but the nation yeah. just couldn't recognize it as such because of what, you know, white supremacy. Yeah. Right? So this has long been the tradition, uh, a, a love and a valorization of black music. Meanwhile, a deep disdain Right. And the disparaging of black humans, <laughs> black lives, yeah, right. A, yeah. a unwillingness to recognize the equality, the humanity of the lives that create this music. Um, you know, we have to think about the art, the politics, as well as the economic variables that are making it happen as hip hop comes of age at the same time that we see the prol proliferation of cable television, the rise of music videos. Hip hop is poised to take advantage of that. And then you just have someone like a Rakim, like a KRS, right? Um, but I, I, I st start with Rakim simply because he was like one of the first leading figures in hip hop who's also, right, a five percenter and it's in his mm -hmm. music. And I think what's also interesting and often hard to imagine is that this is all pre 9-11, right? Yeah. This is, this is the, the 80s and 90s. You have right, a history of the nation of Islam. You have a growing American Muslim community after the death of Elijah Muhammad and the nation moves towards orthodoxy. And then, right, yeah. and then you also have a moment in which Farrakhan, uh, right, as leader of the reconstituted nation of Islam with its black nationalist teachings, um, is considered the spiritual leader of black America in 1995. Farrakhan, as the head of the Nation of Islam, is convening over a million black men on the mall. Uh -huh. Right. You see that the nation is no longer the Nation of Islam is no longer at the forefront. You see a, a, a range of uh, hip hop artists who have embraced uh, orthodoxy, if you will, mm -hmm. Sunni Islam, mm -hmm. Most Def, Lupe Fiasco. They're now the most prominent black Muslim rappers. You get just a few figures like Jay Electronica, who right comes to the fore in the mm. 2010s, who's part of the 5% nation. And in some ways, he, he almost seems like a throwback to an earlier era in hip hop. Um, and right, 
what's surprising is that Jan Electronica also makes a guest appearance on Chance's Coloring Book album. So even mm-hmm. Chance's gospel, praise and worship infused hip hop also gives a nod to Islam, but it's still uh, dramatically different from the, the 80s and 90s when it's impossible to imagine hip hop without right the Nation of Islam, uh-huh. uh, without five percenters. But it has moved more towards Christianity now versus Islam, yes. right? Why do you think that's happening? I mean, I think this is where we have to think about the way in which not just the marketplace, but also the political landscape shifts and shapes the way in which the music, uh, right, the, the, the music itself is uh, um, being created, right? So when Kanye in 2003, we could think of Jesus Walks as a certain kind of before and after, right? Mm-hmm. It, it happens to be two years after 9-11, It happens to also be during the Bush presidency, which was often described as the culmination of four decades of activism associated with the religious right. Hmm. Right. And by that. And it also happens to be two years after T.D. Jakes, uh, Bishop Thomas Dexter Jakes is on the cover of Newsweek magazine as the heir apparent to Billy Graham, or is it Time Magazine as the heir apparent to Billy Graham as America's pastor? And so there's a way in which figures like uh, T.D. Jakes have now uh, replaced uh, the role of spiritual leader to Black America, taken it over from Farrakhan, but have also been embraced uh, by the nation, right? Because of the way in, right? Because the the, the kind of Christianity that's being espoused um, doesn't it shouldn't be conflated with the religious right, but the 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 degree to which the religious right has dominated the discourse on what constitutes religion allows for a flourishing of a different kind of uh, Christianity uh, within American culture, um, but also within American politics. Like Chance's album, Kanye, uh, Kanye Sunday Service. Coupled right. with his endorsement of Trump is right, uh, right evidence of that kind of shared evangelicalism. Now there are different kinds of race politics associated with it, but there's a sort of shared fabric of evangelicalism um, that helps to create a space for Sunday service, for Snoop Dogg to record a gospel album, for Kanye, uh, for and for Chance to do coloring book which samples gospel music, but also samples praise and worship. That's so fascinating. So when we talk about hip hop, right? Sometimes I feel when I listen to, and I haven't listened to hip hop as much, but I am pretty sure I'm going to listen to it a lot more and I'm going to do a lot more research on it. But when I listen to white rappers, I feel like it's like if a white rapper is rapping about politics, to me, it's co-opting. Do you feel that way? Do you think it's okay since the music has become mainstream for other people to emulate? And if so, what is the best way to be part of that realm while paying tribute to the originators of the music. Yeah, that's a real, I mean, that's a really interesting question, right? Like the longer history of a conversation around appropriation, right? We could think mm. about uh, the history of rock and roll, right? And the early founders of rock and roll, the sort of black history of rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, figures like Rosetta Tharp, Chuck Berry, and others who's kind of get written out of that history as Elvis Presley becomes the face. Right. Um, right. And so similarly, you, right, you have that kind of, you could tell a story about that in hip hop of these black artists who initially are exploited by a music industry that is overwhelmingly white. Um, and then you have right white artists who come to the fore, um, and right, and there's part there, right? There is there have been set a, a whole host of efforts to sort of help um, like the founders of hip hop get their just due economically. I think about uh, right also other newer artists uh, who've like been very clear to learn from those financial errors when Jay Z raps around raps about right getting back at the industry for what happened to the Cold Cush brothers. Mm. He's right. His vision of black capitalism in part learns from that history of appropriation and exploitation right. and desire for ownership. But I think your question also in a politic political register raises the question of what often gets uh 
brought together through the, the, the language of allyship, right? So there mm. certainly, um, I mean, so before we go there, though, right, certainly, right, there are different kinds of white rappers, <laughs> right? <laughs> One can think about Vanilla Ice, right, who gets propped up and then is kind of exposed as not a real rapper, right? He, uh-huh. um, and he doesn't have, right, the, the sort of connections to the hip hop community or the skills. But then, you, you know, you have a figure <laughs> like Eminem who, right, is not without controversy, um, and not without issues, but can, you know, I think undeniably rap artistically, yeah. right? Yeah. He has a, yeah. a particular kind of skill set. And you can see, right, in the movie that was loosely inspired by his biography, uh, an effort to grapple with those racial and class inequities as he sort of locates his own authenticity, or at least the character he's playing, right, yeah. locates his own authenticity in the fact that he comes from impoverished means, right? So there's a way in which, right, the discourse on hip hop has been about race and class. Um, but then to the point of allyship, Right. You, you asked the question of what what like what is the in some ways the responsibility of the white artist right. in this context in terms of taking up questions of racial injustice. And it's interesting, right, because in all these conversations around um, anti-racist discourse, which often centers around transforming historically white institutions, there's been uh, a response that says, you know, all this work should not fall on the shoulders of the folks who experience the Absolutely. brunt of white supremacy, black and brown folk, right? Yeah. Or the folks who uh, experience anti-Muslim, uh, right? Uh, yeah. Religious bigotry, if you will. Um, and that uh, there's a way in which, right, white, like I can think of it, the sort of cliche in social media of like white folk need to get their own people, right? And yes. uh, so, right, and, and teach, teach, each, teach each other about white supremacy rather than importing, uh, right, exploiting, if you will, black labor, inviting a, a black expert um, to come and teach the white community. And so I think, I mean, maybe there's a space, um, right, to, think about the responsibility of white rappers. I can think about someone like uh, Macklemore, if you mm. will, right, who pointed out uh, when he was awarded the Grammys, in his estimation, those Grammys should have won, I think, to Kendrick Lamar, right? So there's a way in which he is acknowledging his own white privilege in the context of the industry as an artist who, right, becomes the first artist, uh, the first rapper to be awarded a, a Pulitzer, uh, Kendrick Lamar, that is, uh, as the industry, uh, right, gives the accolades to the white rapper Macklemore. Uh-huh. So his own effort to wrestle with his white supremacy. I think that long rambling reply is, uh, I guess, uh, to sum it up, to say there, there isn't a, a simple answer, but I think there are various ways in which uh, white artists white people <laughs> in general can, can, can recognize their privilege. Um, and, and that sometimes that means working within the context of white institutions. Sometimes that may mean listening and not right. like, like handing over the mic, um, <laughs> if you will. Um, and that, that um, you know, e- even knowing the difference uh, between when to speak up and when to listen um, is 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 something uh, that a whole host of folks would benefit from uh, trying to figure out. So as an expert on hip hop and its intersectionality with religion, do you think people will be listening to hip hop during congregations instead of gospel ah. music, say in like 10, 15 years? Yeah, well, you know, what's funny is that there are a whole host of hip hop churches. Ah. There are a set of movements within Christian churches to include hip hop in the context of church. Right. Um, in fact, one of the early figures of hip hop, Curtis Blow, for a while, had, I don't know if the church is still alive or still going, uh, but founded a hip hop church in Harlem. Ah. There's a book called The Hip Hop Church, right, which was written by uh Phil Jackson and Ephraim Smith, I think I'm getting their name right, uh, about a, uh, a decade ago, I wrote a, view, a review of their book, The Hip Hop Church, which is in some ways like a guide for them to learn from the Congress, like to teach others how um, mm. to, to develop a hip hop church. And whether that means everything 
uh, of the church's hip hop, right? Which is to say that the maybe the preacher raps or, and there's graffiti in the context of the car. Who knows what it looks <laughs> like? And so I think there are uh, an effort in that there are a set of efforts by a number of church leaders and members to incorporate elements, dimensions, part of hip hop culture, not just to valorize hip hop itself, because but because they see it as a means, as a mechanism hmm. for making the church relevant to the next generation. That makes right? sense. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it may not be that it's a holy hip hop, uh, like a church becomes holy hip hop. In fact, right, some hip hop, Christian hip hoppers refer to it as holy hip hop. But it may be that a church isn't entirely organized around hip hop, but that they adopt uh, some of the stylings, whether it be the music, uh, whether maybe it's spoken word. Um, you know, you have hip hop preachers who maybe incorporate lyrics in their sermons, various ways in which uh, folks who have grown up on hip hop ad- yeah. you know, use the music and infuse it into the worship experience. Especially now when younger folks are moving away from religion, right? Absolutely. And that's been a perennial concern to the night. Na- there's always a concern that young people are leaving the church. Right. Do they leave permanently or do they just come back in middle age when they have kids of their own? I mean, that's I think that's true. an interesting question that gospel music is front and center now as right. These artists are now in middle age. Right? That's that what they see. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right? at, at Kanye's Sunday services, you would often see his kids there participating. Huh. Right. And that like sociologists of religion would right point out that this is very much part of the life cycle. Right. Young people leave church and when they're in their teens and come back in middle age often when they have kids. Not all of them, but um, and it would make sense in uh, the age of hip hop that churches would see this music and this culture as a mechanism for um, trying to keep the church relevant, for trying to keep young people from leaving, even if they may eventually return, but keeping them uh, engaged throughout young adulthood and during their teenage years. In the end, and this discussion is so good, we could go on for another two hours. But as I wrap wrap up, I normally ask my guests to define America in a word or a sentence. And I'm so, so curious and excited to ask you this question because you're an academic and I want to get your take on America. Oh, my goodness. So you set me upside. You didn't tell me this question was coming. This is a tough one. This is a great question. I mean, when I think of the United States of America, I guess, especially. Right. 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 Um, I, you know, I guess the first thing that comes to me and this is, yeah, I guess, central to also how I think about my own sense of Christian faith is the, the play, the tension, the push and pull between America, the idea. Right. Mm. The idea of American independence, the um, idea of democracy, the idea of a sense of unity that comes out of difference and is enhanced in some ways by difference. I also you know, right, you can't think about that idea in any serious or rigorous way without taking seriously America, the fact, America, mm. the history, America, mm. the set of arrangements that. Um, right. I mean, this is what the historian, I think, David Brian Davis refers to as, right, the central paradox of slavery and freedom. Right. The only way we can un- understand American freedom is that it was premised upon and forged by and made possible only because of the reality of chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. It's about America, the idea and America, the fact yeah. um, that, right, enslaved Africans built and made possible the freedom of property owning white men. And I think that is the challenge, you know, for for the work that we do as a nation, uh, for the work uh, that we do as a world. The promise and possibility of a set of persuasive and powerful ideas that promise to affirm the fullness of who we are as human beings Mm -hmm. and the set of structures that mediate those ideas and that never fully realize the promise of the idea. And how do we push and pull and fight to make America the institution uh, live up to that idea, right? I mean, this is the, the central premise for a figure like James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time, for Martin Luther King Jr. also, right? Even yeah. right for a figure like Malcolm X, who Absolutely. Right, claims that the institution is not 
able to, the nation is not able to live up to those ideas and never intended to. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess I could go on those. That's a, just a this is, powerful question. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for such an insightful and profound conversation. I think we should have another episode on Malcolm X. I am fascinated by his personality, his work, and I feel like we don't talk about him as much and we don't give him credit as much as he deserves. But absolutely. We absolutely. could do another I'll just episode. Say, right, you can't talk about religion and hip hop without Malcolm X. Right, um, right. I, that would be, I think there's so much more, uh, yes, to have a conversation around Malcolm X, the man, the orator, uh, his spiritual evolution, his political visions. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Thank you so much. This was great. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you have listened to the show before, you know that having academics on really excites me. In Professor Yosef Sorat's case, I was especially intrigued to hear about the intersectionality of hip-hop and religion and how sometimes white supremacy is used to discount religious inclusivity through different musical forms. It really made me think about how important it is to share these narratives and to present counter-narratives so that we have the full picture. Next up, season 12. Yes, season 12. Our team is hard at work gathering guests and producing episodes focused on representation in media. We are thrilled to focus an entire season on this topic, especially as our team is predominantly women of color in the indie podcasting realm. So we hope you tune in. Here's a clip from Arij McCarthy, the Managing Director of Leadership and Culture at the Pillars Fund, who was recently a guest. Growing up in a space where I never saw myself represented or when I did see myself represented, particularly as a Muslim immigrant Arab woman, it was often as a victim on screen. That just didn't represent the, you know, incredible matriarchal power and, and history of incredible women that I have have come from. Oftentimes what happens is that rather than being in the driver's seat and being the drivers of our stories, we're brought in as consultants at the end of the process after everything has been done to just say, good job, stamp of approval. And that's just not enough. The only way that we build empathy, that we humanize a dehumanized group, that we start to understand that difference is not something to shy away from, pretend doesn't exist or be afraid of, but rather something to celebrate.